five. We're already live on Facebook. Now we're going to go live on YouTube too. You ready to roll? Ready. All right. How exciting. One in person. Person. And the rest of you are out there. Shalom Aleichem. Welcome back to Tom's Talmudish. The story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, one of the most amazing figures ever to walk the face of the earth. And this is the story of how an ordinary Tana, sage from the Talmud, I mean, there's nothing ordinary about the sages in the Talmud. We're told that the smallest amongst them could have resurrected the dead. And there are stories like that. And yet, Rabbi Shimon is in a class of his own. This is the story of how Rabbi Shimon metamorphosed and turned into the greatest of the great. It all starts in a cave, Fred. It starts in a cave. Now, this is the third episode in the miniseries, and we'll be bringing it to a close today. Today's subject matter is the big fix. What was broken? Well, Shimon's body is broken. But you know, his broken body somehow enabled his soul to soar. Don't try it at home. <laughs> this is not for the faint-hearted. It's not actually advice that any of us should be following. And we're going to learn kind of um, we learn very, a very different approach amongst the details of what we will discover today. Rabbi Shimon didn't ask for this, but he rose to the occasion. Every day we ask Hashem, do not bring us to the hands of a test. Forget about a test. Forget about a challenge. We ask not even to be brought into the, the, the radius, the hands, proverbially speaking. We don't look, heaven forfend for pain, for suffering, for anguish, for difficulty, for deprivation. We ask Hashem to give us things in a manner that is easy. It's not a mitzvah to suffer. Yet. Yet, sometimes, there are exalted individuals whom the suffering finds. And the ways of Hashem are a mystery. It's not really for us to question. Rabbi Shimon didn't ask for his portion. But it came upon him. And he accepted it with extraordinary grace and an unbelievable amount of love, loyalty, dedication, and devotion to Hashem. And for reasons best known only to the Creator, this was the experience Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai had to endure in order for him to maybe emerge from the cocoon from a caterpillar to a butterfly. You'll forgive the metaphor. So that the 
Rabbi Shimon has acclimatized himself together with the son of Elazar back to an ordinary world, a pedestrian world, despite the fact that they had this otherworldly experience. And now the story goes back to Rabbi Shimon himself. We are going to pick it up. Oh, wonderful to see. We have uh, some people joining us. My voice is way too low. Fred, what am I going to do about this? My tech support is giving me a lot of trouble. Crank up the sound. I can't do it. All right. I'm going to do the best I could. So we are on the bottom of page Lamed Gimel, Amud Beis, page 33, side 2. Is it cranked up loud enough? Can you hear me out there? If you can. Oy vey. It's lower than usual. All right, I'm going to pass. I'm going to pass the feedback on to the tech support people. They seem to be failing us. The Gemara now tells us about the post-mortem of this story. Okay. After their meeting with the elderly fellow who was running with the myrtles to honor the Shabbat, which deeply touched Rabbi Shimon and gave him the ability to refocus his son Rebbe Lazar. And now they understood that they would be living in a different head and soul space. And yet at the same time, they would be able to minister to and to uplift and inspire ordinary people and appreciate, appreciate them for who they were, not for who they weren't, and value them for what they were able to do under the circumstances. People living ordinary lives, yet doing extraordinary things. At this point, the family of Rabbi Shimon hears that he has emerged. We follow the emergence with a big fix. The big fix. Shomar Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoir Chasnei. Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoir, the son-in-law of Rabbi Shimon, heard. He heard that his father-in-law had emerged in peace and that he was heading home. And I got to tell you, there's a big dispute of whether the Pinchas ben Yoir is a father-in-law or a son-in-law. And there's a copious evidence that he may in fact have been a father-in-law. And some suggest that you have to amend the text here in the Talmud. And you have to add a vav. It should say, Chosnei. Not his son-in-law, his father-in-law. Although, as you'll soon see, the story sounds to make more sense with a son-in-law. And then there are others who say, you don't have to change the text, just vowelize it differently. Instead of Chosnei, say Chosnei. At any rate, there is even a school of thought that there were two Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyers. One was his father-in-law, <laughs> one was his son-in-law. You know, such things could happen. Jewish people have uh, common names. And it could be there was many Yoyers, and it could be there was many Pinchases. I have three nephews named Menachem, Zev ben Menachem Mendel. And a son named Zev ben Menachem Mendel. So it could be such a thing, you know. Menachem Mendel is a common name in the Lubavitch world. And in my wife's family, Zev was a grandfather. So you got the... Uh, Zev Mendels. It's, it's not such, a, such an impossible thing to imagine. It's a little unusual that a father-in-law and son-in-law should have the same name. At any rate, 
One thing is certain. Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer was related to Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, and whether he was his father-in-law or his son-in-law, he was initially a greater scholar. We don't know much about Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer. We know that he was renowned as a miracle worker. He was one of the greatest Torah teachers and Torah students of his day, and yet only a few of his Torah teachings are recorded for posterity. His most famous statement is his enumeration of the succession of character traits that leads one to prophecy and the teachings of Repinchas ben Yoyer about the advent of the coming of Mashiach. May it be speedily and in our days. But anyway, this is not a class about Repinchas ben Yoyer. It's really a class about Reb Shimon. But, but, but it's important to know about Repinchas ben Yoyer and to know who he was because it's only by framing Rabbi Shimon with Repinchas ben Yoyer and in their previous exchanges, the scholarly kinds of conversation that they had, contrasted with the scholarly conversations that they have subsequent, do we begin to understand what has happened here. And we have together over the last two episodes promulgated, pioneered, if you will, this idea that the cave story is inherent to the story of Lag Baomer. It is an intrinsic part of the development of Shimon Bar Yochai. And here is, as they say, the proof of the pudding. So the Pinchas hears that his father have a, uh, he's coming home. He's coming home. So he goes to help him. Goes to help him because uh, he's in pretty bad shape. You know, it's not fun to be buried alive for 12 years. Sitting in sand, with the exception of the times of uh, reciting the Shema and perhaps prayer, and the rest of the time in the sand, as we learned, is not exactly conducive to fantastic skin. So the Gemara tells us, I lay levei bonei. He took him to a bathhouse. He wanted to clean him up. Like a spy. You know, a day at the spy. He's going to work over the skin because he looked terrible. He looked awful. He's living on uh, carobs and water. He's living on spiritual sustenance that has a material form. Buried in sand. Buried alive. And didn't think for a moment about his bodily reality. Taken into the bath, he's working over his skin. And the Gemara says that what happened is, he's trying to bring healing to his skin. The skin is serrated and it's broken skin. He saw that the skin was covered with deep cracks. This is not soft, supple, healthy skin. This was, this was terrible-looking skin with his flesh that could be seen through it. The Pichas ben Yor, either his father-in-law or his son-in-law, makes more sense here, his son-in-law. He's trying to nurse his father-in-law back to health. It's terrible. He sees, he sees his racked, broken body. Havakabochi, he starts to weep. It's awful what he sees. Horrible. And what happens is, Vikonosru Dimas Eine become So the, the tears of his eyes are spilling over his cheeks and they're falling on poor Shimon's skin. So you know uh, that tears are salty. You ever been to the what the world calls the Dead Sea? We don't call it a Dead Sea. We don't have dead things in Judaism. We call it the Amhamelech, the Salt Sea. What makes it dead? 
It has uh, nothing grows. Got a lot of salt. If you have a tiny cut, it's not a good idea to go for a swim in that in that uh, lake, that sea, because the salty water is not good for broken skin. You better have your skin in good shape if you're planning to go into the Yam HaMelech. So here you have salty tears spilling down the face of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoir, and it's terrible. It's, it's, it's like, as they say, pouring salt into his wounds. Rashi says, Arich. Arich is like the idea of healing, but in this case it means metakin, it's trying to fix the skin. He's trying to be machlek, trying to smooth the skin, take off maybe the scabs, the, the, you know, the, the, the hard skin. It's terrible. And this pili, this bikoyim sdokim, there's cracks, deep cracks. Machmas you'd be buried in sand for 12, uh, 12 years. It's not, uh, it's not good for beauty treatment. So, Kametzavachale, Rabbi Shimon is crying. Why is he crying? It, he's in pain. It hurts. Shadmois meluchim because tears are salty. Umach even es hamako. I can't see this Fred, You know, I'm going blind over there. Betchilason. It uh, it um, makes it hurts upon contact. So the salty tears are hitting the broken skin, and it hurts upon contact. So Rabbi Shimon cries out. The Gemara says that the Pinchas bin Yoyer's response was, Omar Lehi said to him, he said, uh, Fred, what do Jews say when they're not happy? What do they say? Uh, they say, Oi! Right? Oy vey. That's what he said. He said, Oy li, woe is to me. That I see you like this. He says, Woe is to me that I see you like this. Everybody hears you well now? Very good. Baruch Hashem. Uh, peoples, if you have questions, you can post them there. Fred, do you have questions? You could be La Ben Yochid, the only one here. You can ask all your questions. So, so he says to him, woe is to me that I see you like this. I, I have to see you, my father-in-law, my dear father-in-law, this holy man, this tzaddik, this Torah scholar, this sage, in such a broken, terrible situation where his skin looks like he's back from a trip to hell, and it's terrible. What does Shimon respond? This is, this is just dynamite. And Shimon says to him, Omar Lay, he says back, Ashrecha Sani Bekach. Fortunate are you. You have seen me like this. Had you not seen this metamorphosis, this breakdown of physicality which allowed the soul to soar and to be released? You wouldn't find me like this. In other words, you, you got to have the, the sting comes with the honey. You can't have bees that don't sting. 
Bees make honey. You can't have such an extraordinary outer body, super fragilistic spiritual experience if the body is, you know, a regular body. It doesn't work like that. Because of this unbelievable experience, buried alive for 12 years, minus the head, and not for a second did he stop studying Torah. Entirely focused. No diversions whatsoever. Eating this spiritual, quasi-otherworldly food, staying alive, keeping body and soul together, just barely. He said, this is the kind of thing that allowed the soul to reveal itself, and that's how Rabbi Shimon becomes Rabbi Shimon. He says, woe is to you. Fortunate are you. Lucky are we that we're seeing this. Had you not seen me like this, he says, you know, I wouldn't be who I am today. And of course, this all has to have some kind of practical expression. What's the barometer for the change that Abishimon underwent? So the Gemara says the Mikore initially, would encounter a Talmudic difficulty, he would ask a question. Would, so to speak, knock down the structure of the question. He would demolish the question in 12 different ways. In other words, he understood the, the, the halacha, he understood the Torah in a far more profound way than Rabbi Shimon did. Now he sounds better like the father. And what happened now? Lasoif in the end. Now when the pig has been your would ask a question. Would demolish the question and answer him and show him how he's missing the point. Not in 12 ways. In 24 ways. The tables weren't turned. This is a total quantum leap. A total transformation. In other words, you know, the Shimon is Reb Shimon. Each was given his unique mental acuity, his ability to understand Torah, to into it, to be spiritually creative. You are who you are. You know, you can get a little better. So Reb Shimon would ask a question, and Reb would be able to knock it down in 12 ways. So maybe from now on he could knock it down 11 ways. The deep question. 10 ways. 5 ways. six. Here at the table, the turn, and it's 180 degrees. Now the Pichas Binyar is the one asking the question. And the Shem Echai is knocking him down 24 times, 24 different ways. So we're talking about a rotation. Not only a full rotation, a rotation and a half. A total transformation. Not only did he erase the 12 degrees that Pichas was ahead of him, but in fact, he zoomed twice that, 24 degrees ahead of the Pichas in understanding of Torah. This is not a normal phenomenon. This cannot happen in what we would call measured growth. This indicates that there was a remaking of every iota of his existence. Rabbi Shimon Bar Chai became a different person. This, my dear friends, this is the proof to what we've been talking about over the last two episodes. Here is a practical example of how Rabbi Shimon Bar Chai is transformed. And it's after this that he begins to understand, to record, and to teach Kabbalah. And as the Rebbe points out in one of his, edited by Morim, 
that up until this point, there were many people who studied Kabbalah, but generally speaking, those who devoted themselves to Kabbalah, to the spiritual pursuit of Torah, were singularly devoted to spiritual pursuit. And those who devoted themselves to the technical or, or, or mechanical parts of Torah were singularly devoted to that. And if Shimon is the first one who bridges the two poles within Torah study, not only bridges them, but he becomes the most outstanding of Tana in Halacha and in Kabbalah. This is a, what we call off the charts. It doesn't, it doesn't fit in the frame. This is how Reb Shimon, an example of Reb Shimon, became a totally different individual. Hashem's special vehicle, Hashem's envelope to deliver the mystical teachings of Kabbalah to the Jewish people. And of course, this begins a process in earnest, a process of global transformation because in Chibura Diloch, with your book, Rabbi Shimon was told, Yifkun Yisrael Mebei Galusa, the Jewish people are going to be able to find themselves extricated from Galut. And this is how the coming of Mashiach begins. The coming of Mashiach begins now. Out of a cave. The coming, the transformation of the world, the messianic reality of peace and universal God consciousness begins with Rabbi Shimon experiencing this in a personal way. Where he has this soaring spirituality and yet he's able to live in the real world. The body is broken, but the soul is on fire and Rabbi Shimon can teach all areas of Torah. He's not only versatile, he's extraordinarily able to, to balance and synergize the, all the elements of holiness and, 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 mon and mundane reality, all elements and dimensions and extremes of Torah. And uh, the result is the Zohar that gets produced, and this engenders a whole new system of Torah study, a whole new methodology, which eventually leads over the ages to the time of the Arizal, and from there to the Baal Shem Tev, and the teachings of Hasidus, and very, very soon in Mirta Hashem, to walking across the finish line with the coming of Mashiach. So that's what this is about. Now this is so holy and so spiritual and it's so Torah-oriented. And in classic form, the Gemara says, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai intuitively understood that experiencing miracles and transformation is wonderful, but it has to become part of the real world. It has to become, has to be brought down into the rubric of everyday reality. And that's how the Gemara now continues. The Gemara tells us, at this point, Omar, Rabbi Shimon said, Hoil a miracle, an amazing miracle, a 12-year miracle has unfolded for two people. That God sustained this nation for 40 years that's amazing. Thank you. I think I'm getting too excited about this Gemara. That God sustained a nation, a nation. But here, one person, two people, Rabbi Shimon and his son Rabbi Lazar, experienced miracles continuously, day in, day out, for 12 years. This is unbelievable. And then a 13th year. It's 13 years in total. It's extraordinary stuff. Rabbi Shimon understands that these miracles that he experienced personally and this personal transformation that he underwent has to somehow translate into making somebody else's life better. 
This is such an amazing lesson in Yiddishkeit, my friend. Such a beautiful and powerful and profound idea. If you experience some kind of inspiration, if you are able to rise above the fray of ordinary living and you experience Hashem's largeness and Hashem's magnanimity and kindness, what do you do with it? The answer is, you do something for somebody else. You harness and you channel it. It's an amazing thing. Not in the spiritual realm. In the real world. In a manner that people can see, feel and touch. So Rabbi Shimon says, Israchesh Nisa, Ezil Iskin Milsa. I gotta go fix something. And here comes the big fix. The big fix, you gotta fix. Rashi says, Itakin Milsa, Kiderech Sha'asa Yaakov, Kishayit Nitzel Miyad Esav. In the same way that Jacob did, when Jacob was saved from the jaws of Esau, Esau, the wicked, brutal, cold-blooded killer, who happens to have shared a womb with Yaakov, and he is the one who fathers nations like Amalek, Nazis and monsters, and, and horrific, brutal, cruel, terrible examples, excuses for human beings. And Yaakov fathers the Jewish people. And Yaakov is miraculously saved from this situation. He doesn't say, well, you know, God's going to have to do this. What, is, what was God going to do without a Yaakov? No, he's grateful, as a, as a tzaddik is supposed to be. Yaakov is the paradigm of humility. He caught on who? For he makes himself small, humbling himself before God. He wants to thank Hashem. But it's not only personal. It's not only about your own spiritual journey. Yaakov understood that he has to fix with somebody else. And Rashi says, this is what the Bishim Vayichai understood borrowing a page for the playbook of nobody less august and illustrious than Father, the patriarch Jacob himself. So what did Father Jacob do? The Chsiv, the Gemara says, for it is written, Vayovo Yaakov Sholem. Yaakov leaves this terrible situation. He leaves the reality of Esau that was supposed to be genocide. The end of the family that Yaakov built in the end of Jacob. And he comes now. He's arrived in the future land of Israel. It's called Canaan now. And he comes to Shechem. Yeah, that's how all Jewish history is in Shechem. <laughs> you didn't know that, huh? You really thought it was called Nablus. And that the Jewish people are occupying somebody else's place. Yeah. I could tell you many funny stories about that. Anyway, no, not funny actually, they're tragic. By the way, where Joseph is buried, we have the deed. The Bible talks about the purchase of that land. Besides the conquering of Eretz Yisrael, we actually purchased that land. Yaakov purchased it from whatever locals there were. Okay. So the Jewish history is very old in Shechem. Yaakov comes to Shechem and he does good things for the people. By the way, how is he treated as a result? Terribly. They raped his daughter. And then they tried to hoodwink him and tell him uh, what we call in, in Yiddish, Baba Meisus. You will give us your daughter. Yaakov says, bring me my daughter right now. They said, no, 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 she's very busy now. She's in the spa, she can't see you now. But you know, we can be friends. And everybody supports the rapist. But Yaakov, when he came, like Jewish people do, he did good for others. That's how the story began. Yaakov comes, Sholem, he comes to the city. 
So what is the meaning of Shalim? What is the meaning of whole? And here, the Talmud interjection tells us something quite unbelievable. The Talmud tells us that Shalim, Shalim is, an, is, a, is a representation of wholesomeness or completeness, and that's to be taken literally. The Talmud introduces us to three dimensions. Va'amar Rav, and Rav taught Shalim begufai. He was whole in a bodily sense, meaning in his physical health. Shalim bimamoinai, his wealth was intact. And finally, Shalem B'Tayrosoi, his knowledge, his wisdom, his mental and spiritual acuity were intact. This is miraculous. His body was broken, the story with the angel. He was limping. His, his residuals took an enormous hit. He sent all this money and gifts to Asa. And how did he have time to study Torah when he was working so hard and then he was on the road? His learning must have suffered. And miraculously, everything is in place. That's a miracle. When Yaakov experiences this miracle, he responds by Vayichan es Ha'ir. He responds with Vayichan. So what does this mean? All right, so... Before we go on to what Yaakov did, I want to share with you some of the beautiful teachings about this idea that Yaakov came whole. What does it mean he came whole? So first of all, the Maharsha says that there's a, you know, that you, you notice something right away. The Maharsha says that we seem to go from Yaakov coming whole and then Vayichan es So the Masha says, here we see Yaakov coming and he's complete and he's whole and he's got everything together. And then Vayichan is Pneir. So we say, oh, Vayichan, he must have done something. The Vayichan is a euphemism for doing something. How do we know that? So he says, we can darshan, expound that from the fact that it says, Vayove Yaakov Shalom. He came to the city of Shem. He came. The intimation is that he came into the city. He entered into the city limits. And then it says, Pnei means like the, the facade, the elevation, the outside of the city. So if he already came to the city, why would you say that he did something or arrived at the elevation, arrived at the outer city walls? So therefore, we darshan that Vayichan doesn't mean he just arrived, but he actually went ahead and did something. Okay, what exactly he did, we're going to talk about soon. But first, Fred, can I trouble you for a tissue? Fred, can I trouble you for a tissue? Yasha Koyach, thank you. What would I do if you weren't here today? Okay, so let's talk about this business of Yaakov coming complete. First of all, didn't Yaakov get healed by the sun? Doesn't the Torah say that? Doesn't it say in Genesis 32, 32, that, that the sun 
rose for him. How does the sun rise for him? <laughs> the sun rises for everybody. So Rashi tells us in his commentary, there, you know, the sun rose. It's a euphemism. The sun rose for me. But he said, it doesn't make any sense. He says, Lashem bani Adam, true. But he says, there's a Medrash Agada. And the Medrash Agada is Litzarchai, for his need. Which means through the solar uh, waves, I guess, Yaakov is healed. There's a certain healing property. So he was healed already. So if he's healed already, what is he now arriving at the city of Shechem says, oh, I'm healed, I'm miracle, I have to do something for somebody else. So the Rebbe says, it's self-understood that that could only have been the beginning of his healing and that it was a healing process, a process he never should have healed from. You don't nerve when your sciatic nerve gets dislocated, you don't end up walking around. You don't go dancing at weddings after or walking normally. It's usually a debilitating kind of injury. And here, by the time Yaakov gets to Shechem, he's hunky-dory, everything's fine. How do we know that it must have been a certain amount of time that elapsed? So there are reasons. Because we know that Yaakov's sons felt tremendously guilty for leaving the father alone. And they resolved to themselves that they would never again eat of the hindquarters of the animal to remind them of the miracle of Yaakov's salvation, but also to remind themselves of not having given the proper honor, homage, and respect to the father and they left him alone in the middle of the night. And there he was way late. And really, there's two schools of thought. There's a concept, there's the, there's the eternity of the mitzvah, as Rashbam talks about, and the Sefer Achinuch has a whole discussion about this, that this, this story, this, this, this picture, this paradigm of Yaakov's wrestling is an example of the Jewish people's challenges over the long course of history. And Yaakov's wrestling with a dark angel in the dark night represents the Jewish people's difficulties and suffering and trial and travail over the long night of Galut. And in the morning the sun rises and will be healed. And we will emerge unscathed and we will be healed. And that's why we don't eat from the hindquarters. It's constant, something we have to constantly remember. But there is also an element, the Torah says it openly. Yaakov's son says, The sons of Yaakov took it upon themselves. So the Rebbe says, if he had a limp for 20 minutes, for this they felt so bad. I mean, the, the sun rose in the morning. They wouldn't even have known that he was limping. Aha, uh -huh. they did know. And they felt really bad. So then, common logic must tell us that Yaakov didn't immediately heal. The sun began the process of healing, a process that was completed when he arrived at the city of Shechem. Very interestingly, the Nezer HaKodesh, which is a commentary on the Medrash, also says something similar, but he doesn't give any logic to it. He just says, it must be that Yaakov's healing began when the sun rose at Pinuel, and it only completed later. But the Rebbe makes perfect sense out of it. It's not just, it has to be because the Gemara says it. It's only logical to say that. It has to be the case. So this answers the question of the Sholem Begufa, which is the first thing we talk about. And the question, of course, is, so how did he bounce back from all that money? So the Nezra Kedish says, oh, it was a miracle, an absolute miracle. He gave away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these animals from his herds, and their the, the herds just replaced themselves. But uh, the, the, the Rebbe suggests that that's, uh, 
We don't see anything like that. So Yaakov somehow did some deals. He did some off-the-charts business deals. Before he knew it, all of a sudden, he was back where he, where he left off. None of the money he spent was actually missing in the bank account. You tell that to a regular person, he said, that must be a miracle. Yaakov felt it was. He felt personal deliverance that Hashem had given him that which he didn't necessarily deserve or need. In fact, the Maskele David, in his commentary on Rashi and the Chumash, he says that you know, this uh, business of Yaakov being healed, it happened right away. It happened right away when the sun rose. He says, uh, it was a miracle. It didn't happen when he came to Shechem. It was a miracle. It was a miracle, okay. He says, uh, a miracle. Never made an impact. So then, what does it have to do with coming to the city of Shechem? So the Rebbe says it has to be that this was a process. It didn't just happen like that. There was a loss. There was a setback. But Yaakov rebounded and he was able to regain all of the ground that he lost. And the Rebbe says a very interesting thing. This teaches us an important lesson. Sometimes we face difficult circumstances in Galut. And sometimes we experience a setback. You know it. I know it. We all know it. And it's not, sometimes, not any fault of our own. We did everything we could, and yet we experienced a setback. We said, what, what was that? Why did it have to be? And we have to look at the story of Yaakov and be inspired by it. And say, you have to know that in the end, we will not only regain or survive, we will flourish and in fact triumph, as Yaakov Avinu did. It's a very real thing. And that's the lesson of Avedis Hashem. But it sometimes takes some time. You think it's not a miracle that the Jewish people were able to come back to life after the Holocaust? What do you, you think that that's normal? You think that that's, that's predictable? That a nation that was being shoved onto cattle cars and gassed and incinerated a few years later would experience the rebirth, the kinds of which its nation, our nation, had not seen in centuries and millennia? Who could have predicted such a thing? Who could have predicted it in 1944? In the spring of 1944, when Jews were being raced into the gas chambers and the rest of the world did nothing. Spring of 1944, nearly a million Hungarian Jews were murdered as Hitler's soldiers were losing battles everywhere. The one thing he didn't take his eye off. And the United States and Canada and Great Britain did not bomb, not even one train, not one train track. Who could have predicted that a few years later we would see a renaissance, a rebirth of Jewish life, the kinds of which had never been seen before? Who could have predicted it? Nobody. And this is the miracle of Jewish survival. No, it is not a miracle of epic biblical proportion of overnight or instantaneous reality that we see in front of our eyes the sea split or the manna falling and we will see those miracles again. But nonetheless, it is a great miracle. It is a great miracle that we are here. It is a great miracle that we study Torah. It is a great miracle that we are in our homeland. It is a great miracle that we around the world despite the angst and the hatred directed against us continue to flourish and to remain loyal to Hashem is a great miracle. 
And this is the story of Yaakov. And he arrives, he comes to Shechem, and he said, yes, it's been a long journey. It's been a difficult journey and a painful journey. And yet, Yaakov is able to recognize Hashem's hand. He says, this is a miracle. And therefore, he says, when you recognize a miracle like that, when you, when you realize that it's a miracle, then you have to devote yourself to making somebody else's life better. And that is, not, is this not the story of the Jewish people? This is the story of Abshim Bar Yochai. This is the story of Yaakov Avinu. So what happens here is that Yaakov looks at this. Shimon looks at Yaakov and he says, I must learn a lesson from this. I too must do for others. Now by the way, who was, uh, who was uh, Yaakov Avinu doing favors for? Not such nice people. Not such nice people. A little while later, not only didn't thank Yaakov for his help, but a little while later, they rape his daughter. And then try to sell him a bill of goods while they continue to abuse the Jewish people. But that has nothing to do with Yaakov. Yaakov does his thing. What was his thing? So I want to talk to you about, for a few minutes, to share some of the beautiful teachings of the Mepharshim. And the Shalem Begufo, the whole, so to speak, Embody, whole in residuals, in affluence, and whole in his Torah. The Pesach Enayim says something positively inspirational. He says, I want you to know, he says, that the Sholem Begufay that we speak of here is not simply a Sholem Begufay in a material sense only. He says Yaakov Avinu was able to calibrate every part of his physical body so that he was serving Hashem with every iota of his being, with every fiber of his existence. Shalim b'mamayne means that he used his wealth, his affluence, he put it to work, he gave tzedakah. It was all used for a holy, righteous, godly purpose. And Shalom b'terasa means that he studied all areas of Torah. What's called pardis. And this is very beautiful. Because of Shimon Bar Yochai, he embodies that completeness, that wholesomeness in Torah. He embodies this whole, this idea of, of calibrating his entire physical existence to serve Hashem. And he's giving to others, doing for others. Same kind of thing. The Ben Ishchai in his commentary, Ben Yoda says this is very perplexing. I understand, I understand that it means he used his whole body, but at the end of the day, we're talking about body first. How is it possible that the great patriarch, the tzaddik Yaakov Avinu, the first thing that he acknowledged was his bodily completion, his, the restoration of his health, the ability his, of mobility, and only afterwards talks about money and finances, and then at the end he talks about Torah. Were not the values of Yaakov diametrically opposite? Were not Yaakov Avinu's values first Torah? And maybe then body and then residuals? It's a funny order. The Ben Yehuda says an amazing idea, but he says this uh, 120 years ago, 130 years ago, but this idea was promulgated by the Baal Shem Tev and the Magad 250 years ago. And the idea is this. In Ayom Yom and Yud Shvat, there's a, there's a beautiful little entry about Rebbe Tzernifka, the wife of the fourth Rebbe of the Lubavitch dynasty of the Rebbe Marash. 
Rebbe Tzinifka was a young lady, 18 years old, and she fell ill. She was very, very meticulous in her observance. She didn't eat before davening. And the doctor said to her that you're not, you're not in a good state of health. You have to eat first thing in the morning. So what was she doing? She was getting up in the middle of the night to daven when before day breaks, so she shouldn't have to eat before davening. So not only was she not getting healthier, she's getting sicker. Her father-in-law, the Rebbe de Tzemach Tzedek, heard what the story was with his youngest daughter-in-law. He summoned her, and he said to Rebbe Tzedek like this. He said, about the mitzvahs, it says, v'chai bahem. You have to live in them. You have to live in them. And say, he said to her, that medav baleb in the mitzvahs, you have to do mitzvahs with a passion, with a fervor, with life, with good health, with z- vigor and zest and energy. And he said to her, you have to be healthy for that. And he said, it's better to eat in order to daven than daven in order to eat. You're not supposed to eat before davening. You're not supposed to pleasure yourself before davening. You're not supposed to think of your needs before you pray in the morning. But if a person can't pray properly, what is the point? If your davening is half dead because you're feeling faint, it's better to give yourself a shot of energy and then you daven like a yid. Then you worry about yourself later. He said to her that the Maggid of Mizrich taught that a kleine lechel and goof a small crevice, a crack in the body's health or wholesomeness, makes a big hole in the body, in the soul, pardon me. You got to be healthy, he says. The Benish Chai, Mamish, he's like, I don't know if he sort of teaches it a Magid, but he's right on mark here. He says, Yaakov Avinu, he's not able to be Gibtzadaka, he's not able to have Torah. The first thing, you got to have your health. The Abish has to give a yin bodily reality. Gesund you have to have. Like Hasidim used to write in a pidyon nefesh, begeshem uberuach, ask a bracha materially and spiritually. The holiest moment. You go to the oil and you're asking a bracha and you're connecting on a soul level. Begashmias and beruchmias. Because Yiddish gashmias, the material welfare, is ruchmias. It's a whole idea. We're alchemists. Our job is to turn the, the mud into gold, so to speak, to turn the materialism into spirituality. There's a famous teaching of the Alter Rebbe, the Eberster takes the spiritual reality, God Almighty takes spiritual reality and makes it physical, and our mission is to reverse the process, to make the material into spiritual. And Yaakov Avinu intuitively understood this. And therefore he said, when a person's body is not whole, says the Ben Yoda, he has pain, he has suffering. How then will he be complete in his Torah? How will he be able to give tzedakah? How will he be able to serve Hashem? Yaakov understood this. And he understood that Hashem had given him a bodily reality. So that he would be able to serve Hashem. He had given him wealth and residuals. So he'd be able to give tzedakah and do good things. And he came complete. Physically, materially, and spiritually. This is the story of Yaakov's miracle. This is what he comes to recognize. This is what he comes to recognize. So he's ready to make a difference. So what does he do? What would you do, Fred? What would you do? So here's what he does. 
Here's what he does, my friends. The Gemara says, Tikein Omerav. Sorry, one second. Goofy. Vayichan es Vayichan. Vayichan, the word Vayichan is a funny word. It seems to be alluding to something else. Omarav matbeya tikin lahem. He established currency for them. They didn't have currency. What does this mean? What does this mean he established currency? So I wanted to share with you the words of Rashi. Rashi says, Shalom begufish in a shapa mitzilasai. He was healed from his, from his limp. He didn't forget his learning because of the ardors, ardors of, of, of the travel and the journey. Tikkun lahem. Tikkun lahem means Chain means charisma, grace, beauty. He, he gave a certain beauty to them. He, gave, he made their city attractive. What attracts people to a place? Think about it. One of the things that attracts people to a place is they can make a living. Why do people run want to run away from Europe and come to the Americas? What do they find over here in the United States and Canada? They heard that everybody can make a living here. They heard that everybody can have a dream. That you didn't have to be a member of some noble family to own a farm, or otherwise you were a serf. That everybody could be so to speak, a balabas. Everybody could have his own homestead. It was the American dream. In other words, the word vayichan, vayichan means he gave them chain. He made it attractive. He did something to help business and commerce. He gave them a currency. Minted a currency for them. We'll soon see what this means exactly. Shmuel Amar, Shmuel says he meant the currency. He created business opportunity. Shvakim tikolem. He made marketplaces. He showed them how to do business. Yaakov was a multimillionaire, very successful business person. He said, you guys aren't doing business right. He taught them how to engage. He taught them what an economy is supposed to look like. And finally... There's another opinion. Rabbi Yochanan Yochanan says, He created a system of uh, proper hygiene. Bathhouses. The equivalent in today's day and age of having showers and running water. They can be healthy. So this is the idea this is the idea of what he did to aid in a system. To aid in a system. And there's a corollary between the three things of Yaakov. Some of the Mepharshim say, let's talk about this idea of Tikkun Lehem. So Rashi says, Tikkun Lehem means, it comes to the word Ve'ichen Chein. He made it an attractive place to live. Why was it an attractive place to live? It was an attractive place to live because there was currency. He created a system of currency that enabled people to to do well. Chanoya, a place to park their wares. He created a business opportunities. Chanoya literally means to park. He gave them areas to, you can bring your goods. Here's how you, here's how you do business, he said. Rashi then brings another opinion. Veli nira mi 
Vayiken is chalkas hasoda, loshen tikkun. That it says, Vayiken means tikkun. But the Mepharshim have a very difficult time with this because they say nowhere do we find in the Talmud that the word tikken shall show up without a tough. Yiken is not tikken. But Rashi seems to favor that approach, but it's, um, he's alone in that. And many, many, m- most of the Mepharshim, like the Marsha and others, they favor his first opinion. In fact, the Marsha says that um, Rashi, the Doresh, Vayiken eschelkas meloshen tikon hu dachuk. Marsha says, I don't know what to make it. It's very hard for me to lay mitzinu loshen tikon. We don't find tikon rak bekeheles v'leninsu zelase tov. We only find it in a keheles and it's always found with a tov. So how did vayiken become a tikon? He says, it's very hard for me to understand that. And Marsha favors the approach of the the, um, the first ad, the first interpretation of Rashi, which could be Rashi himself also does, because he brings down first the idea of the different chen v'chanoya. He made it an attractive city. He gave them a place to park or move their wares. So here's a couple of interesting things about what he did. What, what does it mean that he made them currency? What does it mean? So the Ben Yoyada says that the currency they were using was foreign currency. They didn't have their own currency. So they were like a, a second-rate kind of place. Yaakov said, what's with you guys? Why are you second-rate? You should have your own currency. You have your own monarchy. Yaakov built the monarchy, built up the monarchy. He said, you should have the same kind of esteem, the same dignity, the same respect as all these other little fiefdoms and little kingdoms. This is your little kingdom. Mint, mint your own currency. They're like, wow, we never thought of that. We didn't have the guts to do that. Yaakov helped them do it. It turns out later, of course, they behaved very badly to Yaakov. And Shimon and Levi massacred the city. But then they didn't massacre it a backward, a backwater, a tiny little place. It was already now a prominent place that had their own currency. And the fear, the terror of the children of Yaakov spread far and wide. You help others, it ends up helping you. The Pesach Inayim says that it goes a little deeper, he says. He says, yeah, he made him currency. He says, but their currency, like the currency in antiquity and in modern times, had human images embossed on the, on the coins. And he said, this is like a... It's questionable for a Jew to do that. In fact, you'll know in the modern state of Israel, there's no faces on any of the coins. Quite remarkable because the things aren't always done so Torah-like. But Baruch Hashem, that's one thing. You see, the coins have shapes and designs, but no faces. It's a Jewish way. It's like a graven image. So Yaakov taught them how to make coins, identifiable coins, without having the bust of an emperor or empress that's, a, so to speak, uh, on the coin. So in this way, you try to take them away from idolatry. And so, okay, so that's like a spiritual pursuit. You try to make them more spiritually minded. And a lot of people worship money, you know. Money is the new idol. So you try to use the money to bring a focus on God. You know, the Rebbe spoke about the fact that in the American dollar, it says in God we trust. Even in the American penny, it says in God we trust. Trust is much more than believe. The Rebbe was very moved by this. The Rebbe thought it was an amazing thing. That the currency which people worship, unfortunately, 
says in God we trust. Something. So this is what Yaakov did. He was the first one to imprint in God we trust. So what's the idea of marketplaces? The Gemara says that everything Hashem made, we should utilize. A person that says, for every There was product that was rotting. They weren't getting the stuff out. Yaakov taught them how to utilize things. And that's a big deal. That's very important. That's meaningful. And finally, Yaakov arranged bathhouses for them. The Peschenaim says, you know, this is connected to the idea of mikvah and purity. And some of the other Mepharshim emphasize that this corresponds to Yaakov's own miracles. That the bodily reality, the material reality, Yaakov uh, made, he was healthy. He made them bathhouses. They should be healthy. The idea of affluence, he created business opportunities for them. The idea of Torah, he minted them new money. He gave them a proper perspective. They shouldn't worship the money. They should have the intuition to worship Hashem. Anyway, that's the story. That's what Yaakov did. So this is all now being learned just to take us into the story of Reb Shimon. So Reb Shimon says, Yaakov knew what he had to fix. Tell me what I have to fix. Where is my big fix? What can I do? Omar Is there something that I can fix? Feed is breaking up. Omar lay. So they said to him, yeah, there is. And now this is going to be a page turn. There is a place in Israel where there is a doubt of whether or not there is ritual impurity. And that's a big problem. It's a big problem. On to page Lamedalad. There's a lot of discomfort for the Kohanim. Why? Because Lafuke, they have to go around this place. Rashi says, Shaya Shuk. This was the main market. She is stopping by Mokim Maver. There's on the way to the market. They thought that there might have been a graveyard, a lost graveyard, right there in the middle of the marketplace. Right there in the middle of the city. The Kohenim couldn't go there because a Kohen, a male descendant of the Aaron, the progeny of, of the, the Aaronite progeny called the Jewish priests, the Kohenim, are not allowed to become ritually impure. They had to go a whole long roundabout way. They couldn't make a living. They couldn't make a living because they were busy keeping the halacha, but the halacha didn't allow them to do what they had to do. So there was a big problem. So Yerushim is kind of fusing everything together. He's got holiness, and he's got, he's got, he's got finance, and he's got uh, making it easier for Kohanim, taking away their physical pain. He's got all three of Yaakov, all in one, in one opportunity here. So Yerushim has got to do something about this now. What are you going to do? How are you going to fix the problem? Yerushim is a great Rav. Does the halacha. He says, okay, tell me. Ika inish. Is there anybody still alive who has a clear memory of any area here that, that has a chazaka, the pre-assumed reality of ritual purity? Is there such a thing? He knew the exact question to ask. 
Rashi says, Bahai Shuk, in this marketplace area. Miyomov, Shalehoya Beis HaKvaris Gomer. Does anybody know a part of it that definitely wasn't a cemetery? Because if it was an actual cemetery, not just a few, a lost grave, then we have a problem. You're not allowed to uproot cemeteries. You can move a body, a resting site of a human being. You can't say, okay, no more cemetery. You know, like in Europe, they do all the Jewish cemeteries. Not all. Many, many Jewish cemeteries. The Middle East is not different, unfortunately. So we Jewish people, once a place of cemetery is like that till Mashiach comes. So it's, uh, can't do anything about it. The municipality has a cemetery right in the middle and you're, uh, as they say in Yiddish, you guys stuck. You can't do anything about this. So Rabbi Shimon says, I need to have some kind of tradition. I need to have some kind of, of testimony that this is not an actual cemetery. And the only way we can know that is that if a part of this area was used for Taras. So that's the first thing he has to establish. So he asked the right questions, of course. He knows he's a rov. He knows what to ask. Omerle, they said, Ahu Saba, there's this old man, this old fellow. Khan, over here. And he says, he, the old man says, Khan Kitsitz Ben Zakai Turmasi. Here, Ben Zakai went ahead and uh, separated or cut the truma of what they call lupines. I don't know what it is, some kind of bean. Rashi says, Ben Zakai is Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakai. Who is Ben Zakai? Shoslon va'akoron l'achidu. And he planted it and then he harvested it. This is, we're out of time really. There's a whole discussion. What do you mean he planted it? You're not to plant truma. They say maybe it was truma tomea. It was truma that became tomei. So if you plant it in the ground and then it grows again, then it can become purified through this process. At any rate, Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakai was doing some farming here with this holy stuff. And so clearly it couldn't have been a cemetery. But Yochanan Mezake, by the way, is uh, himself a Kohen, according to the evidence that we have. This is Turmasi Truma. This is Lupines of Truma. Hatzrich is the Shomra Matara, which have to be kept in purity. V'gam hu hoya Kohen. Rabbi Yochanan Mezake himself is a Kohen. As it says in the Tesefta Impara, Rabbi Yochanan says, Imasha Asa Yodis Shachachti is the whole discussion in the Tesefta about what clothes does the Kohen who makes the red heifer wear. Rabbi Yochanan Mezake says one thing, and they come back with another thing. He says, of course, I was there. According to another version, I did it. So you see, he's a coin. Maybe even a coin. God will say. At any rate, so when he had, when this happened, so what did Rabbi, what did Rabbi Shimon do? Ovad ihunami hochi. He brought the lupines. He did the same thing. He started to separate the lupines over there. Shimon did the same exact thing. He started to spread these lupines over there. And a miracle happened. Wherever, so to speak, it grew, or the, the, wherever, wherever, wherever it was, was hard ground, he said, oh, this is pure. Wherever the ground was broken and soft. So he went ahead and marked that. He said, this is a place of a caver. What in heaven does this mean? Let's take a look at Rashi. Rashi says, Ho, Turmisin. He was and he was cutting these lupines. He's throwing them all over. Vanasa Nais, Rashi says, a miracle happened. He used the same exact beans. He threw it, and all of a sudden, the remains started coming to the top. So he marked those areas as a caver. And every, the rest of the area was made pure. 
This is the story of Rabbi Shimon fix things. There's a lot of questions about this. Why did Rabbi Shimon use the lupines? Why didn't he find another way? And anyway, how could you do things with miracles? You're passing Allah with miracles. There's a lot of beautiful teachings about this. First of all, there's an emphasis according to the Ben Yehuda. He says that, that he used the Turmasim because he says this is the thing which with the Chazaka was made. This is the testimony was used with these kind of beans. I'm going to use these kind of beans to establish the facts and matter. It's really, we're a little bit out of time. But the question, the famous question is, so, so why, did he, why did he, how did he do it? It's a miracle. And there's actually a sophisticated rumination that, that demonstrates that Bishim Bayechai, according to the Tosfos, first of all, Rashi says, Derechnes, the Tosfos says that, that, uh, that he knew he was an expert. He could tell which ground was hard, which ground was virgin ground, which ground was disturbed, or, or, that, he, or that he used a, a series of sophisticated deduction to figure out where there would be graves and where there wouldn't be graves. And in doing so, he was able to halachically purify this area. But the thing is this, the thing is that there was a lot of coin and they said, yeah, 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 it's a, it's a leniency. We don't, we don't use those leniencies. So the Shimba Yochai used miraculous means to demonstrate to them that the halacha that he ruled was actually factual. And this way we can bring together the concept of a miracle, which Torah Loba Shemayim, and you can't pass on halachas on miracles, but at the same time, he was able to utilize the methodology of Torah along with his supernatural, miraculous abilities to demonstrate how he was going to make people's lives easier. That was the big fix. And you know what, my friends? We're all out of time. So Hashem should help us that we should experience the great big fix. And, uh, and we should uh, merit the coming of Mashiach. Bimheira ubiyameinu speedily. And in our days, thank you so much for joining tonight. I hope you found this Gemara illuminating and uplifting, inspiring. And uh, we should celebrate like Baomer and Mirz Hashem together with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yachai in the third base of Migdash, Bimheiro, Biyamenu, Amen. Have a wonderful evening.